Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. So at this time, uh, we just want to continue our worship, and we want to study the Word of God. So let's bow our hearts in prayer, and then afterwards we'll see what the Lord has for us. So Father, we thank you once again for allowing us to gather. Thank you for your holy word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for what we're able to understand thus far. So Father, I do pray that you'll help us to just to continue to have open and softened hearts to receive Whatever it is you want to speak into our lives tonight and to also be open to whatever you desire to do in us, through us, and for us. So, Father, I pray for the gift of teaching to be able to rightly divide your word of truth. I pray, Father, for just that ability to decrease while you increase and be glorified in this study. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. Thank you for another day of worship in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So please turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 27 through uh, 33. And the title of tonight's lesson is, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, most of us had a favorite subject in school, when I say all of us, most of us, or maybe I should lessen that and say many of us had a favorite subject in school. As far as I'm concerned, when I was younger, math was my favorite subject. But then I got to high school and it was probably one of my least favorite subjects. And then I started to like English and, and literature. And I remember one of my English teachers asked me, what did I want to be after high school? And I was just joking with her, just messing around with her. And, and I told her I wanted to become an English teacher. She was an English teacher. And so she took me seriously. And so she went down the, the, the hallway and started telling all of the other teachers that Darrell wants to be an English teacher. But what happened was I I really started having this desire to teach. And so from the 10th grade on, you know, that's really what I wanted to do. And eventually that's what I became. And so that became my favorite subject. And some of you may have a favorite subject to talk about. For many of us or it's about the Bible or things in the Bible. Some people like to talk about sports or other things or food, recipes they came across. And so some people have a favorite subject, but, but tonight I want to share my real favorite subject. And for many of us in this room, This is going to be our favorite subject as well. And the subject, of course, is with the capital S. Our subject tonight is Jesus. And this information that is going to go forth tonight will be new to some people. 
For others, it's going to be a refresher. But for all of us in this building and those viewing online, those who will be listening to the audio at a later time, I hope it will create a greater appreciation for Jesus, for who he is and for what he accomplished. And so we want to look first at verse 27 in Mark chapter 8. And it says there in that verse, now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. So they came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road, Jesus asked his disciples, his followers, who do men say that I am? Now this place, Caesarea Philippi, was a city about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and and it was located at the southwest slope or foot of Mount Hermon. Now, this city was rebuilt and renamed by Herod Philip in honor of Tiberius Caesar Augustus. Now, this is that Herod Philip who is called the Tetrarch of Idurea and Trachonitis. This is not the Philip who had his wife taken by Herod Antipas. Because remember then, uh, John the Baptist had rebuked Herod Antipas for marrying his brother Philip's wife. This is not that Philip. The other Philip was a private citizen. This one is Tetrarch of Idurea and Trachonitis. And this is the one who rebuilt and renamed this place that we know as Caesarea Philippi in our studies. And so the name of this place was a combination of uh, Tiberius Caesar Augustus and, and his name, Philip. That way you can't confuse the other Caesarea that's on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea or on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And this place, by the way, Caesarea Philippi, was called Peneus after the Greek god Pan. And to this day, you can go to Israel. You can go to Caesarea Philippi. And you can see this grotto, this, this small cave that was dedicated or that was for this idol god, Pan. Now, I actually took pictures of it and I was going to post it tonight, but I didn't have time to. So maybe next time I'll put it up for you. But you can go to Israel and still see this grotto for this idol god. But let's look at verses 28 through 30. It says, So they answered, the disciples answered Jesus, John the Baptist. That's who some people say Jesus is. But then they said that some say you're Elijah and others believe you're one of the prophets. Matthew 16 tells us that some people thought he was Jeremiah, another great prophet in the Old Testament. And Jesus said to them in verse 29 of Mark 8, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And Matthew 16, 16 adds a little more detail. It says the son of the living God. So you are the Christ, the son of the living 
God. And if you turn to Matthew 16, verses 17 through 19, you're going to get some blanks filled in here about, about what Jesus said to Peter. Matthew 16, verses 17 through 19. So at verse 17 in in Matthew 16, Jesus answered and said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So that means the son of Jonah or the son of John. And he said, for flesh and blood. So no human, no mortal man has revealed this information to you. What information that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. But who did it? My father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. You are Petros. And it means in Greek, Petros is a Greek word. It means a small or detached stone. So you are Peter, a small or detached stone. And on this rock, the Greek word being Petra. And so Rock here is talking about a large stone or a bedrock. So on this Petra, on this large stone, I will build my church and the gates or the forces of Hades shall not prevail against it. Shall not have victory against the church that I build. In verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind. In other words, whatever you forbid on earth will be bound or forbidden in heaven and whatever you loose or permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And then back in Mark 8 verse 30 it says, then Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And so what is the rock that Jesus will build his church on? Is it the little rock Peter, or is it the other rock, Petra, the large stone? Well, he's talking about this large stone, but, but what is the large stone? What is the Petra that Jesus will build his church upon? It is that confession, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus will build his church upon that confession, And so those of us who make this same confession that that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And of course, we believe it in our hearts. Then they'll be added to the church. We'll be added to the church. He'll build his church upon that confession, upon the Petra, the, the bedrock, that large stone. He'll build it. Upon that confession, because Jesus himself, the scriptures tell us, is the church's foundation. And in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, it says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No other foundation. And, and if that's true, that means that all other so-called foundations are shaky at best. Or you could build your name on some prophet, some other man, some philosophy, some politician. You can try to build your foundation, the foundation of your life upon those so-called wise sayings. 
those smart sayings according to human standards. You can try to build your life on that, but it's not going to work. It's shaky at best. And so the best foundation we've come to understand is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation that anyone can lay except Jesus Christ. That's what his church is built upon. And if we're going to live a spiritually solid life, if we're going to grow in a healthy manner spiritually, we have to be built upon the solid, the firm foundation, Christ Jesus. Now in Matthew 16, 18, if you still have your finger there, you'll notice that something else Jesus told Peter is that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The church that, that he's going to build, which is built right now, with actually people are still being added to the church. And I believe that's part of the reason the rapture hasn't taken place yet. And so there's still some folks, there's still some living stones, so to speak, that are a part of the bride of Christ, this church, this this building, and that's us. We are the living stone. And Jesus says that the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. And Hades, by the way, is the realm of the dead. And so the phrase, this phrase that he's talking about, the gates of Hades, is talking about the powers of death. The powers of death will not prevail against his church. The, the forces of death will not prevail against his church. No forces will. And death, by the way, if you've been reading the Bible, is a tool of the enemy. That's something he used to use. It's something that was effective for the enemy at one point. And it's most effective, this tool of death, for those against those people who are not saved against people who have not received the forgiveness of sins that is offered to everyone. And so death as a tool of the enemy, it's not effective anymore because Jesus conquered the enemy. Jesus conquered death. And by the way, there's one quote from a Bible scholar in regards to the gates of Hades. There's one quote. Quote, it says that the gates of Hades then would symbolize the organized power of death and Satan. The gates of Hades then would symbolize the organized power of death and Satan. No, he uses death. But again, it's not effective anymore. It's like, a, it's like a gun with no bullets anymore, especially for the believer. And here's a verse to, to back it up or a couple verses to back it up. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that is humans, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise shared the same, took upon a human body that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, speaking of the devil. In verse 15, and then, of course, release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So some people are, are still fearful of death. They're held in bondage 
to someone who has a gun with, with no bullets in it because Jesus defeated Satan and he conquered death by dying first and foremost and then by being resurrected. And for the believer, praise God, I hope you realize, I hope all of us in this room and online realize that for us, death is not an effective weapon or tool against us. It's not something that, that Satan can, can use to keep us in bondage, in the bondage of fear. Because death for the believer becomes a door to shed our weaknesses. It, it becomes a door to shed our pain. It becomes a door to shed all of the problems that we're going through on this side of eternity. That's what death becomes to us. Just a door. And so as we walk through that door of death, oh, we just become bigger and better, so to speak. But then notice something else. And what Jesus told Peter in, in Matthew 16, verse 19, he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so keys suggest power and authority. And so not only will Peter be able to enter into heaven himself, but he, he can also open the door to heaven to others by what? By preaching the gospel. And that's what we saw in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And, and we saw that about 3,000 souls were saved that day that he preached. And so on that day, we, we saw that the church had begun. We saw the inauguration of the church on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And God used Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, to, to open that door of heaven by powerfully preaching the gospel, by preaching about Jesus. This firm foundation. But then Jesus also said that he'll be able to bind and loose. And binding and loosing was extended to the other disciples as well in Matthew 18, verse 18. Binding and loosing. Binding what, what is forbidden and loosing, of course, what is allowed. And so God gave them authority to do that because well, first of all, you'll see in Matthew 18, 18, if you look at the context, it's talking about church issues that arise. And so heaven will back them up in the decisions they made in, in, in church issues. And it's not that they're changing the will of God or that when we bind and loose that we are changing the will of God. It just means whatever has been done in heaven if it's been done in heaven, then guess what? We can, we can declare it on earth. And we'll have God's backing. And so our binding and loosing, our, our uh, forbidding and permitting or allowing should be an extension of what is already forbidden or allowed in heaven. Because he only will back up what has already been done in heaven. And this is why it's important to know God's view and God's will. And so we can see this for example, in church discipline, you know, if somebody is here and they're living in, in a gross sin, so to speak, and they won't repent. Then we can deal with that situation according to the scriptures. And we can tell somebody, well, as, as long as you're in that sin and, and you won't ask God for forgiveness... And guess what? 
you're going to be chastised for that. And heaven will back us up because that's been bound in heaven. Or if somebody comes to Christ and they truly meant it, they're, they're sincere. And we say, you know what? Do you really mean it? Are you sincere? Do you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? Do you believe that? Then confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And if they're sincere, we can allow, we can lose, we can say, well, according to the word of God, according to the word of God, because you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you confess Jesus as your personal savior and Lord, then according to the word of God, you are forgiven and you are now a child of God. We can say that. Why? Because it matches the word of God. In verses 31 through 32, back in uh, Mark chapter 8, it says, And he began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. You find that in Matthew 16, by the way. And he'll suffer many things. And he'll be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. In other words, he'll be rejected by the religious leaders of the Jewish people. He'll be rejected and he'll be killed. And after three days, he'll rise again. Speaking, of course, of the resurrection. And Jesus spoke this word openly to them. And then Peter. Oh, man, he's he's on a roll now. Now, he, he already heard. Oh, man, you you're right, Peter. God revealed that to you, not man, that that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. So now he thinks he's on a roll and he can say whatever he wants to say. And so after Jesus told him about the upcoming suffering and told the disciples about the fact that he'll be killed and resurrected, Peter took him aside. Now he thinks he, he's pretty cool. He has all this authority now. And he began to rebuke. He, rebe- he began to reprimand Jesus. And in Matthew 16, 22, he says to Jesus, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. See, Peter was of this mindset that the messianic kingdom was going to be set up immediately. They were looking for a political hero. That's who they thought the Messiah was going to be, that he was going to set up his kingdom right away. And so he began to reprimand Jesus. It didn't fit his understanding or many of the other Jews understanding of what the Messiah came to do. So Jesus, you must, you're the Messiah. You, you're the son of the living God. We got that right. So therefore, you're about to get this thing started right now. You're about to deliver us from the Romans right now. Jesus told him something different. So he rebuked Jesus. It's not going to happen. And I wonder today if, if any of us have been directly or indirectly rebuking God for what he said in his word. I know for a fact that there's people in the world who do that. People would indirectly rebuke God for what he says about who he is. They, they just want to hear that he's a God of love, but not the God of wrath because he's a holy God and he cannot let sin go unpunished. That was the purpose for Jesus taking the wrath of the father upon himself. But people who don't want to be up under the umbrella of Jesus, are they going to suffer the wrath of God themselves? Because we all, by nature, the children, the, the scriptures tell us, are children of wrath. And so if we're not under the umbrella of Jesus, 
will go through that wrath, eternal wrath, separation from God in a place called hell. And so some would indirectly or directly rebuke God for what he says about who he is. They would rebuke him for the concept of hell. They rebuke him for things he says about human sexuality. No, God, you made me the wrong way. That's really what people tell God when they want to be something else other than what he created them to be. You didn't know what you were doing. Some people take him aside, reprimand him. You didn't know what you were doing or any biblical principles that people don't agree with. Doesn't fit their mindset. Some would openly or directly or indirectly rebuke God for what he says, just like Peter did. In this instance, in verse 33 of of Mark 8, it says, but when Jesus had turned around and looked at his disciples, it says he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful or you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're not mindful of the things that concerns God. You're not seeing things from God's point of view, but instead, Peter, you said what you said. You contradicted what I said. You contradicted the plan of God, Peter, because you are only concerned about the things of men, only what fits your understanding, only from a humanistic point of view. And I don't want to pass up the detail that that Jesus looked at his disciples before rebuking Peter. And I wonder if he did that because he saw that what Peter said could affect them negatively. Or could it be that he knew that they were thinking the same thing that Peter was thinking and that what Peter has said. And so Jesus had to address this situation right away. And it brings up a point that we need to apply that. That when there's things in our households or in the church that's that's sin or contradicts the word of God, that we need to address it ASAP as well. Just like we see Jesus. Just like we see what he did here in this instance. And what Peter said, by the way, was satanic because it contradicted, again, God's plan. Not because he was indwelt by Satan, but because... What he said was something Satan would say, influenced by Satan, used by Satan, not necessarily indwelt by Satan. And if we're not surrendered to God, we can find ourselves being under his influence as well. Oh, no, he doesn't indwell. He doesn't possess. Demons can't possess believers. We have the Holy Spirit within us. But we need to be careful of whose voice we're listening to. We don't want to listen to the worldly voices out there because Satan has sway over the world system. And so if we're listening to what the world says and taking it in and adopting it for our beliefs and what we say and how we live our lives, then it's satanic. Because the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And so he contradicted God's plan and what he said. And so we need to be mindful of not giving the enemy a foothold in our lives. When we take our eyes off of what's biblical, when we take our eyes off of scripture, when we when we stop praying 
as we ought to be, then we're more susceptible to fall into temptation. We're more susceptible to allowing the enemy to gain a foothold in our situation. And it'll lead us to say things or do things that contradict the word of God, just like what happened here in this instance. And, and the reason this happened is because of where Peter's mind was. It was not on the things that concerned God. It was on things that concerned men. And so where is our mind tonight? Is it on the things of God or is it on the things of this world? Is it on the things of men? It's our mind on things that only please us, that only makes us feel good. So where is our mind tonight? And so one thing I want to point out as we really get into the application part of tonight's study As we want to take a look at the fact that there were two questions Jesus asked. There were two questions he asked in in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. Well, first of all, in verse 27, he asked, who do men say that I am? And of course, their answers were, were varied. Their answers were different, just like the answers are today. If you were to ask each other, who do people say that Jesus is? Or if Jesus were to whisper to you, who do men say that I am? You would come up with various answers because some say that Jesus was just a messenger of God. That that he was uh, uh, just a prophet and he was not the son of God. Oh, some would say that or some would say that he was just an enlightened teacher. Some would say that he was a God, but this God is with a little G. Some would say that he's Michael the archangel. Some say that he's a brother of Satan or he was just, that he was only a great man. And I'll tell you, if anybody holds that view, it is just flat out blasphemous. It is satanic. I don't care where they got it from. And if it's not the Jesus of the scriptures as how he revealed himself, then it is satanic, straight demonic. So who do men say that I am? Jesus asked them. That's the first question. And then he asked another question in our studies as we review. The second one is, but who do you say that I am in verse 29 of Mark 8? And this question is a more important question, I would say, because it becomes now more personal. Okay, we've heard what other people had to say about me, but who do you? Speaking to his followers, his disciples, who do you say that I am? And so, of course, as we read before in our studies, we know that Peter had answered correctly only because he received the revelation from God, the father. And so one thing we want to take from this lesson tonight is that just like Peter did, we we need to know who Jesus is for ourselves. And so who do you say Jesus is? What is your view of Jesus? Christians must know this. And it will make sense for unbelievers to know this information about who Jesus is as well. They also need to know what he did prior, of course, to putting their faith in him. I think that will be beneficial. 
And so we're going to answer this question of who is Jesus? And as we begin to answer this question, we're going to get into something that's called Christology. And it's a fancy word. And it just means that it's a branch of theology, which is the study of Christ. And so we're going to get into some Christology and it'll focus on the person and the work of Christ. And so, first of all, who is he? Who is he? Let's start with his name. Because first of all, we know that his name is Jesus, and it's the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yehoshua or Yeshua. Jesus, by the way, means Savior or Jehovah is salvation, and his name describes his mission. And we see his mission here in Matthew one twenty one. and in context, what's going on here is Joseph, the betrothed of The Virgin Mary at this time, he was having a dream and the angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph and and said that Mary will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And here it is. Here is his mission for he will save his people from their sins. So that that's one thing we want to know about Jesus and answering that question. Who is Jesus? First of all, his name describes his mission. He's savior. Jehovah is salvation. Save his people from their sins. You see, Peter understood who Jesus is, but he missed his mission. He understood who Jesus is, but he missed the mission of Jesus. He thought that he would come right away and set up his kingdom this glorious kingdom but what he didn't understand that they would be suffering first before glory and it's the same for us in this life there's pain there's suffering but then comes glory for the believer so but for the believer the person who puts his or her faith in jesus christ the best is yet to come for us this is not the best that life is going to get As sweet as it can be, there is more to come for us. So first, we may go through suffering. We may go through pain. We may suffer all kinds of weaknesses and struggles, but there's glory that comes afterwards. And and Jesus even set that pattern when he came the first time. The first time he came as a lamb to suffer. He didn't open his mouth. He did his father's will, but now he's going to come back and he's going to come back in glory. The second coming. When he actually touches down, but before then, before the second coming, when he touches down, there's going to be something called the rapture, the gathering of the church to Christ in the air with all the believers. And then the scriptures tell us that we're going to come back with him in Jude. It says that, behold, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. So he comes for us in the rapture and then he'll come with us. And we'll rule and reign with him for a thousand years in that millennial kingdom. But first, the suffering have to take place. But then the glory. And so Peter understood who he was, but not his mission. But also to answer that question, who is Jesus? I want to point out the word Christ. Christ, of course, you heard it said many times, it's not his last name. But in fact, it's a title. 
and it comes from the Greek. It means the anointed one. The word Messiah comes from the Hebrew, and it means the same thing, the anointed one. So Christ or Messiah is his title. So Jesus is the anointed prophet. He's the anointed priest. He is the anointed king. He serves in all three roles. If you read the scriptures, you'll see that prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed when they were installed into their positions. But our Savior, our Lord, he holds all three offices. You see, as prophet, he said whatever the Father wanted him to say. As priest, he is the mediator between God and man. And of course, as king, he's the rightful ruler of our lives and will reign on this earth. Let me ask you a question. Who is reigning in your heart? Who's sitting on the throne of your heart? Is it you or is it the king of kings, Lord of lords? But something else we want to know about Jesus as we get into this Christology, the study of Jesus. Uh, Something else we want to know about him is that he is the subject of the Bible. That he is the star of the scriptures. Luke 24, 44. Now this is the resurrected Christ who appeared to his disciples. It says, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Why mention those? Well, that's because in the Hebrew Bible, it was divided into three sections, the law, prophets, and the Psalms. The Psalms also called the writings. And so in all aspects of the Hebrew Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, it's all about Jesus. And so we see Jesus in the types. Types are those prophetic symbols or pictures. We see him in shadows and the prophecies. We see Jesus in that in the Old Testament. So those sacrifices, the temple and and all these things, the Sabbath day and so forth, these were a shadow of Jesus. And Abraham about to sacrifice his son, Isaac, that was a shadow, a picture of what the father would do for his son, except God carried it all the way through. And so we see Jesus in the scriptures and he told them as much. All things must be fulfilled, which were written in the Old Testament. In other words, if you want to sum it up, there's a quote that says the following. It says, he is contained in the Old Testament, but he is, he is explained in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he is enfolded, but in the New Testament, Jesus is unfolded. So Jesus is the star of the scriptures. That's the second thing you need to know about who Jesus is. He's also, of course, the second person of the Trinity. He is the son of the living God, which means by the way that he is God. Some try to explain the Trinity as a mystery. We can't explain it all that clearly. We're not God. But we can look at it as that, that the father is the planner, the son is the accomplisher, and the Holy Spirit would be the applier. And so when we talk about the sonship of Jesus, this is not a biological sonship. And this is where people go wrong in their theology. No, him being the son talks about his function. It talks about his position. It talks about his relationship. It talks about the order or the hierarchy within the Trinity. 
In fact, the Hebrew expression son of implies one with the same nature. So when it says that he's the son of God, it means he's of the order of God. It means that he has the same nature as God the Father. Whatever makes God the Father God, Jesus has that. And they understood that to be that way. Because in John 5, 18, it says, therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Why is that? Because son of means in this situation that he has the same nature as God. So we're saying that Jesus is God when we say that he's the son of the living God. And him being the son of God means he shares the same essence and attributes of God the Father. For example, he's eternal like the Father is eternal. You can read there in, in Micah 5 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, a prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem. But look at what it says his goings forth, that he comes from eternity. He always existed. Furthermore, in John 8 58, Jesus said to the Jews, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, before Abraham existed, I am. So so Jesus is claiming by saying, I am. He's claiming to be the same eternal, self-existent, unchanging, and self-sufficient God of the Old Testament. That same God that spoke to Moses. Jesus is claiming to be him. You see, he shares God's attributes. He is omniscient omnipresent so he knows all things he is all present he is omnipotent all powerful he is immutable he doesn't change and also the fact that he's the son of god it means that he has the right to do things that only god can do he can forgive sins we read about that already earlier in mark Forgive sins, he can resurrect the dead, and he is also appointed as the judge. The scripture tells us in John 5, 22, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. That is a prerogative of deity. Jesus, being the son of God, is God. And as the son of God, there are also actions of God that are attributed to him. You need another witness? Okay, we have Colossians 1, 16. It says, uh, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Jesus and for him. The son of God is God. This is who he is. And if you're still not convinced that the son of God is God, well, the father himself called him God. Hebrews 1.8. In Hebrews 1, for example, actually, by the way, in context, is showing how Jesus is superior than the angels. So he, he cannot be Michael the archangel. Because Hebrews 1 says that he's superior than, than all the angels. And it shows us here, Hebrews 1.8. But to the Son, God the Father says, your throne, O God. He just called the Son God. It's forever and ever. 
A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Son of God, that's who he is, meaning that he is God. But not only was he fully God, he was also fully man. If Jesus were only a man, he wouldn't be perfect enough to be our sacrifice because all people are flawed. We all have a sin nature. And so he couldn't just be man. He had to be fully God and fully man. And so he would lack the the perfection to be our atonement for sin if he were only man. But he would also lack the perfection needed to represent man to God. And he would also lack the the perfection needed to represent God to man. And so he had to be not only fully God, but fully man. Why? Because it was human beings who sinned and lost the garden. And so man had to pay for it. But there's no perfect human who can pay for it and who could redeem what was lost. And so a perfect God had to become a man and be a perfect man to gain back what was lost. And so he's both fully God and fully man. And Jesus, by the way, can operate from both natures. And so sometimes you'll read that Jesus was tired or Jesus didn't know something like, you know, the time of his return or so forth. That was in his humanity but not in his deity. So whenever you talk about Jesus, you, off, you always have to ask what. So there's always, as one Bible scholar will say there, when it comes to Jesus, there's two what's and one who. Two what's. That means two natures. He has human nature and, and a divine nature. Those are two what's, but it's one who in Jesus. They meet in Jesus. And so when we talk about Jesus, we have to ask which what is being, talking about, being talked about. And so there's some scriptures that shows his deity when he already knows what's in the heart of man. But then we see his humanity when he gets tired and he needs a drink of water. Fully God, fully man. He was able to operate in both natures. And here's why the topic tonight is so important for everybody in this building, for everybody who's watching, for everybody who's listening, for everybody who don't even know what we're talking about tonight. This is why tonight's topic is so important. And the question, who is Jesus, is so important because what you believe about Jesus and how you respond to him is a matter of life and death, literally. And spiritually speaking, it's a matter of rewards or punishment you see what you believe about jesus and whether or not you put your faith in him determines first of all relationship what you believe about jesus and whether or not you put faith in him determines first of all relationship first john 2 verses 22 and 23 it says who was a liar But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is antichrist who denies the father and the son. Whoever denies the son does not have the father either. He who acknowledges the son has the father also. So for anyone who say, oh, I love God, I worship God, but denies the son. Blasphemy, antichrist, satanic. And so what we believe about him, if we put our faith in him, determines, first of all, relationship That's why it's so important about what we believe about him. Second of all, what we believe about Jesus 
And our relationship with him determines where we spend eternity. Determines where we spend eternity. And this is John the Baptist speaking, by the way, in John 3.36. This great man of God says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Simple. That statement is as simple as the clothes John the Baptist were wearing. It's as simple as that. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who doesn't shall not see life. And so when we believe about him and how we respond to him, our relationship with him, Again, determines where we spend eternity with him or without him in his presence or in the place called hell. But thirdly, what we believe about Jesus determines how we live our lives. It determines our lifestyle. Because John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments So what we believe about him determine how we treat others, for example. Because Jesus told us to love our enemies. In fact, he told us to love other believers, love one another. He said that all the law hung on two commandments, love God with our whole being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So if we see him the way we're supposed to see him, It will determine how we live our lives. Are we walking in love towards believers, towards our spouse and family members, towards our coworkers and fellow classmates, even our enemies? If you love me, keep my commandments as the worship team comes to the stage. Now, since Jesus is God, and we prove that through the scriptures, That means that whatever Jesus said is true. Think about that. Since he is God, whatever he said is true. For God does not lie and God does not make mistakes. Therefore, whatever Jesus taught about the afterlife must be true. Whatever Jesus taught about any topic must be true. Because he's God. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't lie. So when he says that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but through him, that must be true. There's no other way to put it. It's true because he's the Son of God, because he is God. And guess what? As believers, if we have Jesus, which we do as believers, that means that we have the right way. The right way to salvation, the right way to have a relationship with the Father, the right way to enter into eternity, to be in heaven. We, we have the right way. That means if we have Jesus, that we have the truth. That means if we have Jesus, that we have life. Because it says that he is the life. He said that himself. God does not lie. He is the life. He's a source of life. You have him, that's what you get. So I would just encourage you tonight that if you have Jesus, you have the way, the truth, and the life. I would encourage you tonight, no matter 
what the pressure is in the world, no matter what people say about Jesus in the world or in your family or in your, or in your group. Don't give in. Don't change your view about who Jesus is. Oh, yeah, you hold a biblical view of Jesus and, and other people are ridiculing you and saying Jesus is this and that. What men saying Jesus is. Don't be ashamed of your biblical view of Jesus. They're going to call you narrow-minded. That's okay. You want to be narrow-minded because Jesus says narrow is the way. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Jesus is the way. There's no, there's no plural at the end of that word. There's no S at the end of way. It's not a plural word. He is the way. So I'll just encourage you tonight, if this is the Jesus you believe in, the way that was presented tonight, don't be ashamed no matter what the pressures are. Don't be embarrassed. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't be afraid to wear your shirts that says, I love Jesus or team Jesus to whatever function you're going to. Don't be ashamed of that because the Jesus that we served is a mighty God. The Jesus that we serve is the only one who rescued us from that pit that we were in. Out of that miry clay. So do not be ashamed of this Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you are to us. We thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us. Oh, we pray, Lord, to never be ashamed of Jesus, especially in this world where people need him. We can't afford to be silent about Jesus. We can't afford to be ashamed of Jesus. So, Father, we pray for more boldness. We pray for more opportunities to share the gospel. We pray, Father, for anyone, Lord, in this building or online or anybody who will be listening to the audio or be viewing the video at a later time. If they're not saved, I pray right now you'll chip away at the hardness of their hearts that you'll draw them to Jesus. Father, I pray for these people in this room, thanking you, Lord, that they were able to be here. They were able to press through whatever they were going through today. And they are here by your grace. Oh, Father, may you bless the remainder of their night. May you bless the remainder of their day. May you use them in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I just want to thank you all for coming out. Just want to solicit your prayers for the saints here and for the leadership here and just for the leadership just throughout the body of Christ, especially California. And once again, just want to share with you, just in case you forgot what I said last week, we love you. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.